0: repairs to renovations get started on the angie app or visit angie.com today you can do this when you angie that don katz sounds more like a college english professor than a tech ceo he's obsessed with literature and writing and it's why he started audible in 1995 that's the audiobook company owned by amazon
1: It was all about the stories, and it was all about the voice of the story. So I was always an ear-driven writer. I kind of heard things when I read it.
0: This is Business Insider's Success How I Did It. I'm Rich Filoni. Katz certainly knows how to run a tech company well, and he got his master's in economics in the 70s. But his passion above all else is storytelling. He was one of the earliest writers for Rolling Stone, where he covered terrorism and revolutions around the world. He had a long career as a writer, But in his 40s, he decided to take a giant leap in another direction. He tells me it started with a fanny pack, or belly pack, as he calls it.
1: I loved listening to well-composed, artfully performed words when I jogged in Riverside Park. And I would listen in the old school, which was to have tapes in my belly pack. And I always talked about the fact that they were profoundly inefficient. They froze in the winter, they, they would bake in the dashboard in the summer. There's nothing worse when you're aerobically taxed than trying to futz with them and change them out in your then Walkman, an ancient device. So there was no question that I, I realized that there was an element of the standing business of audiobooks that was not very efficient. But there's many other strains of why Audible exists. And clearly, that one relates to the fact that when we did figure out the technology, and this was 1994 and 1995, that included how to download a file, how to secure that file.
0: Like MP3 files? Exactly, but
1: this was before the term was used. Okay. So as with most things we've done, you know, so programming five years before a podcast was named, to think that we survived, because usually <clears throat> you don't get to be six or seven years before a market and, and survive is kind of one of the great mysteries. But the belly Peck metaphor kind of related to the fact that when my college roommate, supercomputer designer and I were volleying on all of this new technology, digital signal processing, yeah, this mid-90s, and I realized we have to make it so I can get this into my belly pack, (laughs) whatever (laughs) this is. And that led to the invention of the first solid state digital audio device. And that's why in 1994, I was walking around trying to convince smart people I knew that there was this future of the best of civilization packed in these solid state devices in our pocket, which at the time was to say that people thought I was crazy and didn't know what I was talking about was a huge understatement. When you think of how early we came out, five years before the iPod, it's still stunning that we survived those early days.
0: Well, how'd you get the resources to make this device in the first place?
1: So this was a case of just pretty classic venture capital working to support innovation, or as we kind of have as a tenant at Audible, inventing before the customer asks, which we share with with Amazon as kind of a tenant, which is very different than the business school concept of solving the problem of, of a customer. When we had this concept, I wrote a 120-page business plan. Ed... Uh, like a good author would. Exactly. The joke there being that I showed it to a, a business person I knew was a real great business Leader and she said to me, um, "Where are the bullet points?" And I memorably said, "What's a bullet point?" Because I, no, I was <laughs> so it was like, like basically was a, a novel. I was a prose writing. writer, and so yeah. uh, I write this plan. And then one of the guys who was my contact, because what I did is I used my journalism to become ever more expert how, so on wait, digital h- technology. How long had
0: you been a journalist at this point?
1: Uh, well, I put my figurative pen down in, in 1995, and that was 20 years to the day that I was a, made my living as an author and a writer. It was quite a long run. You know, I, I basically was a writer in the sense of the old Rolling Stone voice. I was one of the original Rolling Stone writers, and we did na- nonfiction storytelling that was true. This kind of narrative nonfiction storytelling that we developed at Rolling Stone was based on novelistic recreation of the truth at a time when other outlets were not necessarily telling the truth about either civil rights or the war Vietnam and the like.
0: Can you just tell us a little bit more about those early days of Rolling Stone?
1: Yeah. So I had one of these weirdly precocious starts to a a career that I was a student at the London School of Economics. I just finished my master's. My roommate from Chicago was a rock writer and she was always a rock and roll fan. And so I went out for dinner with her one night, and uh, I'm sitting next to this guy who says he's from Rolling Stone, I tell him what I'm doing, and he basically says, you know, you should write a letter to this guy, Jan Wenner, and you've got such good access to what's going on in Europe, you should just do some storytelling, you know, if you you like writing. As I told him, I was an English major before I went to economic school. So, uh, long story short, I get a letter when Francisco Franco, the dictator of Spain, starts to die going way back. And I'm asked to go to Spain and cover the death of Franco. And in that period, I learned to be a journalist because it was the last hurrah of all the World War II correspondents. And one way or another, I I write five or 6,000 word story. And it proceeds to come out on the front page of Rolling Stone and with almost no edits. And it's called Dispatch from the Valley of the Fallen. And I went into the uh, the London School of Economics and I'm out of here. <laughs> and I proceeded to become a freelance writer who worked mostly for Rolling Stone, but I avoided the editors whenever they would come to London because I looked like I was about 11 when I was 23. And it was just an amazing thing to be part of the first 10 years. And uh, And I would do crazy things. I covered the Ethiopian Revolution. As the only American kind of on the ground, I ran around with the guys who became the Red Brigade in Italy. I covered the Northern Ireland crisis when there was shooting, and I think I was probably thinking that if I almost got killed, that they'd publish me because I could not figure out why I had this. Because
0: just a kid cause going Rolling, rolling Stone zones. for my
1: generation was was a literary kind of Bible. It was like a, a dream to be able to write for them, and then. They consolidated from San Francisco to New York, and I was brought back to be still foreign correspondent and, and feature writer. And uh, it was just an amazing couple of years. You know, in many ways, my my current life is is not that far unconnected. I mean, in many ways, I, I often say that Audible is precisely the business a professional writer would make if a professional writer was uh, was interested in the business underpinnings and the organizational underpinnings of how they made a living but it's a fantastic background i wouldn't trade those 20 years as a writer for anything
0: when did you decide to go from journalism to being yeah, an a tech
1: guy right my whole thing was what do these things mean as opposed to what they do i mean the rolling stone idea was you'd get close to as i did to terrorists or to people in, throughout the 70s who were fighting you know boards of liberation willing to die for a cause what was it like to have that happen. And then when I wrote books about business, and I wrote a book about Sears and 600-page Tome, I wrote a book about Nike, it was what do these companies mean to all the constituents around them and to the culture in general. And I think that allowed uh, Audible to grow up as a company that really was, really consistently about, you know, opening up opportunities to consumers in particular uh, and this weirdness of customer centricity that I bonded with Jeff Bezos on where you really are working backwards from an, a different idea, which is like, how can you actually import something more profound to people because of the power of or, of an organization, as opposed to, you know, measuring yourself in dollars and cents or just permutations on a theme. Um, we kind of went out it saying, There's a media type that doesn't exist in America for all sorts of artificial reasons, and that is the spoken word, that this civilization, this American culture, and all of our literature is based on an oral and vernacular tradition. Which was so it was of, all about the stories. It was you. all about the stories and it was all about the voice of the story. So I was always an ear-driven writer. I kind of heard things when I
0: read it. So it wasn't as big a leap as it was. It might wasn't have and
1: I, so I didn't but I knew that the general snobbery around the idea of recording a book came from this idea that textual culture was somehow morally and <laughs> intellectually superior. I never bought it. And the reason I never bought it was my mentor in college was Ralph Ellison, the great American writer. And Ralph was an unbelievably deep student of the vernacular tradition, so I read a lot of the studies from the 1920s in particular about how American literature became this function of oral culture. And of course, historically, you know, there was no written culture, and the Greeks through the end of St. Augustine all were against writing as intellectually inferior because it would atrophy memory and the ability to think. So Uh, Audible came out to existence for a lot of different reasons, but I was a pretty rare, pretty literary writer who actually thought the sound of literature had the same integrity as the look of it.
0: Sure. And and the seeds of this were when you were in college— Why didn't you start to get into this field at that point? Why wait 20 years into your career? I'm
1: still more the student and the celebrator of advanced technology than I am the creator of it. So I often say, actually, that being an inquisitive journalist is probably one of the best backgrounds to start a company. Because if you're good as a reporter, you actually know you don't know enough. And you have to then, in some basically moral level of honesty, go out and find the truth And you have to supplement it by getting people to trust you, tell you the realities of things. And I think that it's a fantastic way to be honest about what you don't know. Now that I'm a very active angel and even started a venture fund, I see that there is an instinct with particularly pure tech younger entrepreneurs that can do it all. And it's just not true. And I think you do actually have to have this fearless inventory of what you just don't know. Otherwise, you can't write the truth.
0: So you and your roommate, you're able to complement each other's skill sets, and you have this great idea. But when did you decide that this could actually become a company, and when did you make that leap?
1: It was literally us just riffing on this idea, which sounded like a business idea with all those rationalization of cost, more consumer choice. The weird thing was that Ed Lau, who's one of my best friends to this day— Ed knew how to do spreadsheets, unlike me. So the business plan began to really look like a like a business plan. So it went and from
0: a novel to an actual business plan. It did, it did, and <laughs> uh,
1: and and very quickly. And I got a lot of un- underemployed geniuses out of Bell Labs to build really from whole cloth all of the code, the technology, the flash imagery. You don't think about how many things you know you needed to invent in that day to say nothing of designing the hardware. And it had a lot of you know, funny moments to it, which was that the original thing that we put a patent out on, which was, I remember, $14,000 in my credit card, and, and it was a working writer with a house and, and kids. It was a stress point at that point, even though I took an 85% year-over-year pay cut between my last year as a writer and my first what year your as an entrepreneur. That? My family, my, my wife has always supported me kind of working without a I mean, you can't do this stuff without that kind of home support. But the funny thing about the patent was that it was for a solid-state cassette. It was shaped like an old-school cassette. And the idea was you loaded it up off the phone lines, you stuck it in the tape bed in your car, and then it proceeded to turn electromechanical controls into digital controls. And you look back and think, well, the tape bed was going out of existence. So it was one of those kind of like good idea at the time things, and pretty cool. So in our many cases of Audible-ready devices, all these devices that we ended up having our firmware and software inside, when they, including the iPod, you know, all the museum pieces at Audible headquarters, it sits there as uh, actually probably the first thing
0: we it's thought of. It's like a relic, yeah. yeah. And when you're saying that this dark period of trying to survive, was that in the late 90s, the early years?
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, being as early as we were to the market you know, we really took off in in two thousand three, and that was ninety five. We started the company. Usually, you don't get more than sometimes months, let alone years. But we did a lot of smart things to survive, and I think part of it was too that since I'd watched business as a student of it, I mean, in many ways, I was more of a student of larger organizations than I was a starter of a of smaller companies. But I knew enough to know that I was not going to give our IPO money from when we went public in, in the summer of 1999. I was not going to give it, which almost everybody did, to either Yahoo or AOL You know, at that point, because as soon as the bubble broke in April of 2000, um, they had no money. So we kept our money. We partnered precociously with big companies, which was one of our, our kind of distinctive stories try to succeed throughout partnering the competition. But we did end up having you know, big partners, Microsoft, Bertelsmann, and others who were there to kind of back us up during tough times. All the tech companies were in a dark place in, uh, for much of uh, 2000 till probably the middle of 2003. The, the decimation I've heard is on the order of 1,500 publicly traded internet companies down to 140 by the end.
0: Yeah, it was devastating. And to step back to even day one, what was it like going from journalist to the CEO of a team of these very talented people? Well, the best
1: thing for me was I wasn't as much of a lone wolf. I mean, the, the kind of job I had, I would go off on these long features or books that would take me several years. I learned a lot from so many people. But ultimately, I'd come back and I would have to be in a room writing. It was like me and the and the ideas and i realized at various points in my life notably raising a whole lot of money to rebuild a library in my in my hometown that i was pretty good at galvanizing teams around ideas and visions and creating missions that you could build consensus around and things like that and i just thought how great would it be to have colleagues particularly colleagues who would become your friends which is what's happened so one of the biggest changes was just being together i remember we had a retreat in 1996 for all 11 of us or whatever, and uh, and everybody goes around the room to say what's you know what's exciting about this to them. And the office manager spoke, and she said, well, the amazing thing for me is that my boss never worked in an office before. And I said, well, there was an office. There was just no one else there. <laughs> so uh, I think that's part of it. It's just the, yeah. the camaraderie was edifying, and to this day. I think uh, I'm really one of those people who thinks that Audible had lots of founders,
0: and a couple years in, you had brought in an external CEO, right?
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, I mean, I was easy about whether I was the chairman or the the driving presence or the CEO, but yeah, there was a a point where just the tech build, particularly being in the hardware business, was so specific that I recruited a a great guy um, to just be CEO for the tech development capacity he had, and he. Unfortunately, died on a basketball court at 39 years old of an aneurysm. And uh, I often said that of those of us around, uh, you know, then the 30, some of us, it totally steeled, I think, people to some of the external realities of life. I think it actually toughened people up. I realized I was the only one in the company who'd ever really had tragic, sudden death kinds of loss in their life. And so grief counselor came in and everything. But it was painful passage. Uh, the guy's name was Andy Huffman. He was a great, great guy. I took back over, and then there was another point where there was briefly another CEO came out of big media, and that was another era for the early Internet 1.0 era, where it became very sexy to work at companies like Audible. Another very nice guy came in, but that didn't keep. Yeah. I was CEO again. So I've been there. Uh, you know, I'm one of those strange animals, and I'm a founder still there after all these time. So when did
0: you and Jeff Bezos have your first conversation? The
1: first conversation we had probably in 2006, and then we consummated the marriage in uh, 2008. (laughs) It was a lot of discussion, but we were always interacting. I'd go to Seattle. I would pitch digital ideas. He and uh, his team were not kind of ready for digital going way back, and he was not necessarily wrong because it was difficult to get a lot of traction in digital media before a lot of infrastructure was there. And, uh, you know, we had a big part of it in that we did – actually empower the real revenue and the real content of a lot of the devices in that day. And what happened was that when the bubble blew out, we decided to just double down on serving customers in the best possible way, and that meant we developed all kinds of SDKs and firmware that would be built into the MP3 players so that they natively worked with Audible, and that's what happened with with the iPod. We had chips that were made that were Audible compatible, and then we created a membership program, which, again, was not normal. Most people thought it was just going to be you sold a book, you know, it was a la carte. But we created a, a habituation system that between the quality of the service and the quality of the customer care and the quality of the content going up and up and up. And then became the largest maker of spoken word audio as well as the largest seller. But it ended up being that what we're doing is creating these lifelong loyalists in normal retail you can have loyalty, but it's not a, a something people do every day like they do with Audible.
0: Could you tell me what the conversation was like with Bezos when you realized that this would be a good partnership?
1: I mean, I forget you know, who came up with the idea first or second, but we mainly would get when we got together was just to trade ideas, which was always what I did from the time I met him in, in the mid-90s, which was just literally – you know, what do you think about this and what are you thinking about this? It always was a great uh, way to just interact when we saw each other. And we also kind of shared this whole idea that he's very specific on, which is uh, missionaries and mercenaries, that he pretty much divides the world between mercenaries or those people who you know, sell the company before it's anything, change jobs all the time. You know, they're in it for them. They're really good at review time, but they don't actually add value. You know, it's a pretty negative critique. But let's face it, there's a lot of people who who see the world that way and often go into businesses where you are measuring things in, things like money. And then there's these missionaries who just get hooked on an idea and just can't let it go, and they subordinate the noise to that stuff. And, you know, I don't necessarily – I see the gray area a lot, but those are the kinds of things we, we always talked about that made me you know, admire him from the beginning.
0: So Amazon bought your company for $300 million in 2008, and you and Bezos had established this personal connection. So it just felt right at that point, and it seemed like this is what could take Audible to the next step?
1: Yeah. I mean, there were negotiations. and We were a public company, so fiduciarily we... We talked to other companies and the like, which is what you do. It's part of the rules and the law and the shareholder responsibility. But it was pretty easy because a lot of the people that I still work with there I'd known since 2000 because that's when we sold 5% of Audible to Jeff. So the first thing we did after acquisition was had oh 150 engineers working on transferring our massive code base over to be compatible with Amazon's. And then you could use your Amazon ID to be a, a member in that that opened up access to the greatest agglomeration of consumers probably in the history of commerce, which would be Amazon, to Audible. So that whole idea of how high is up started happening fairly quickly after acquisition.
0: And why did you move Audible to Newark in 2007?
1: That was really part of this whole idea of what does a company mean in ways that can transcend what it does. We knew we wanted to move to a place that these amazing number of actors we were now employing Could get to more easily. And Newark is only 17 or 18 minutes from Penn Station, and uh, one of its great advantages and its massive comeback. I was always interested in urban transformation, and you saw how you could teach a kid out of poverty through the amazing dedication of these teachers and the like. So I was very focused on that, and I just got to know Newark that way. But we just wanted to move in and start to define the culture through these other things, like embracing as a customer set people without socioeconomic privilege and uh, just because it seemed like the right thing to do. So, we, you know, first thing we did is we just made a rule that all the nepotistic hiring of the kids of my friends and and things like that was going to end because you had to be a kid from Newark to be a paid intern at Audible. And that immediately changed the culture for a better. These amazing kids came into our world. So now we've got We're the biggest employer of actors in the New York area, the kids are there, rocket scientists, uh, level of technologists alongside English majors turn into business people, and it becomes this really rich place to work and even so much better for being in Newark. And then I began to get pulled into the idea of being the chairman of the Economic Development Corporation. You began to see all sorts of ways to be disruptively progressive about how to create growth and change. And that led to things like the founding of New York Venture Partners, which is a, a old-school venture fund that's really taking off. It's right in our building because if you do the more advanced research, you see that tech actually is a key to urban transformation. You see it in other cities because it actually generates massive numbers of jobs at all levels for every tech job or coding job.
0: And how did you avoid seeming like an outsider parachuting in and kind of being like, I know what's good for you? and just follow. The it's a,
1: well, one thing is you just have to be much more schooled on history than, frankly, a lot of college graduates who want to do good are. Just to understand that will cow some level of appearing to be patronized. You can't change the color of your skin, but you can just do the right thing. And I've found amazing allies from all political walks of life, and partly too. It's just because we kind of put our money where our mouth is. You know, we, we make sure that... School system has audible service like we 've done this year, and we do things like uh, subsidize our employees living in the city, just trying to get other corporations to get with it
0: what 's next for audible?
1: I think audibles just going to keep getting weirdly bigger at massive scale, which is not easy to to manage you know there 's not many companies that have achieved high growth and high scale and it 's a uh, you know it's what my kids would call a first world problem, and uh, not so sure how politically correct that is, but it's a uh, it it is and uh I see the original mission, in some ways, it's beyond my kind of dream for it. But the big thing for us now is that we're inviting the professional creative class to write and perform to this very distinctive aesthetic and going way beyond audiobooks. And as we have been from the beginning, you know, Robin Williams, Ricky Gervais, people like that worked for us five years before the word podcast, you know, was in the the lexicon. But now it's really... Been fascinating. We opened a whole new theater fund to enfranchise playwrights who are writing one and two voice productions, and the dream there is to potentially become the electronic analog to theater. Theater could be well supported, but not necessarily from the altruism point of view, from the art point of view. There's just so much talent, an amazing number of young playwrights who are, I would say, underemployed. So we're looking at that class and everything. And we, but you just consistently see new opportunities. And, uh, you know, again, I'm sort of it's how high is up is kind of the fun for me after all these years.
0: What advice would you give to someone who maybe they were 20 years into their career as you were, who's considering a big change or starting their own business?
1: Yeah, well, uh, my wife would say that it's better to have a non-toxic midlife crisis like uh, like I did <laughs> rather than some of the other things people get up to when uh, they hit the middle of their lives. So I would recommend trying to start a business rather than other things people get up to. It's a little less uh, family toxic, but I think that... You know, the question is, can you take what you probably get to know a little bit more because you've accumulated more experience and then be as inventive as somebody younger who has this monolithic belief in a new idea and stuff? And if you've got that kind of ability to persevere, but you have to be one of these relentless people. You you kind of have to, you know, if I listened to a lot of the people around me, largely people who went to business school, we would have shut the company down six or seven different times just to be, quote, responsible. But I was nothing but irresponsible. We always found more money. We always got through the problems. And so it's, you know, I think you just keep your energy up, you know, and look for opportunities. And uh, the other thing is, though, is don't avoid history. No matter what you think up, you probably need to have historical context. And then you also have to have colleagues you trust. You have to define your vision around the right kind of metrics because you you need to have a vision of what you're going to measure in the early days. Because if you don't, the people you get the money from will tell you how to measure. And you won't necessarily want that until it's the right time.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Gus. It was great. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis, and our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and leave us a review, because those really help. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success. You
1: know how to book flights and hotels.